In old school games, life is cheap. Don't be a dope, bring your pole all over. And try not to go down in a heap. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Down in a Heap podcast. I'm your host, Rob, podcasting to you live from beautiful Northeast Minneapolis. There at the top of the show, we heard my first submission of the theme song for Down in a Heap that has an instrumental accompaniment. Daniel Norton showing off the axe work. Thanks, Daniel. I appreciate it. That's cool. Now I've got, I think there's four different <laughs> renditions. There's Taylor Lugosi's uh, Bella impersonation. There's Smokey Joe Richter belting it out. There's Blue Ray Otis singing the bluesy form. And now we've got Daniel with kind of the um, smooth guitar work. So I could roll like a D4 now each episode and see which one I put at the top of the show. This is cool. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. So this will be a show that, uh, like the last one, continues my exploration or the the process in bits and pieces of my game design series on the Down and Heap role-playing game, which is heavily inspired by Into the Odd by Chris McDowell, Maze Rats and Knave by Ben Milton, and Best Left Buried by Zachary Cox. In the game, I'll just do a little bit of a recap here. It will... In, it will be a classless game, so the characters, the player characters won't have a, an archetype class per se, but it will involve levels where it caps at 7th level. There are six attributes for the, that define the character. Strength, Constitution, Dexterity, Lore, Will, and Weird. These attributes are measured in bonuses or potentially penalties rather than um, a more abstract number. And those bonuses directly affect die rolls. The hit points, the equivalent of hit points in the game is called grit. And you get grit uh, by going up in level. You also can get grit by having a higher constitution. If grit is reduced to zero to keep going in a in an action sequence you need to make a will save or go down in a heap or at least roll on the down in a heap table which i'm still kind of working on uh you grit can be recovered more quickly but if you have attribute loss through um bodily harm or disease or poison or something like that that will be uh, re recovered much more slowly the base mechanics in the game are very similar to Maze Rats, where it's rolled 2d6 with a target number of 9 plus, and any kind of attribute that applies to it would be would uh, add or subtract the, the die roll. If you roll Snake Eyes, it's a mishap. If you roll Boxcars, or is that what double sixes are called? Well, if you roll double sixes, that's a critical or um, like a major success or whatever. 
I'm using a, an, like an advantage-disadvantage system, but I'm calling them edges and snags because they're, it's easier to say, and I get tired of hearing that term. Um, and that just adds another die to the roll where you drop the lowest if you have an edge or drop the highest if you have a snag. And edges and snags can cancel one another out. <clears throat> In combat you basically make the same thing. You roll two, two dice and try and exceed the target's armor. And for every point the roll exceeds the target's armor, you do a point of grit damage. If you roll a critical, the attacker must further make a strength check or be stunned and potentially knocked down if they are of equal or smaller size than the attacker. And if the, if the defender has a shield, not only it will it raise their armor, as will light and heavy armor, but it will, uh, you can sacrifice it, you can shatter it, and reduce uh, any, uh, uh, the damage from an, an attack you can see by a d6. Uh, as characters advance, they can, or go up in level, they can choose advances, which will provide various, like, what would normally be class abilities, or maybe something that would be considered a feat in some games. And they increase their attributes. Each level that you would uh, go up, you can increase an attribute by plus one, and you get an advance. And you start the game with one advance, and a discretionary advance, or a plus one on one of your attributes that would otherwise be zero. The characters start the game with a plus two in one stat, plus one in two others, and zero in the remaining three. And you can determine that randomly, or if your group prefers, you could have the character or the players arrange that to taste. So that's the not so quick recap and we'll dive in now to the action sequences combat and whatnot and then after that i'll play calls i got a couple from jason from nerds rpg variety cast a couple from joe from hindsightless and a couple from daniel from bandits keep let's move on to combat First off, any character trying to find a secret door or a trap or sense an ambush or anything like that would need to make an observation check. This is the same as any other check. You roll 2d6 with a target number of 9 plus to determine if they perceive something beyond the norm as noteworthy and worth paying attention to. There's no stat relating to an observation check. But there will be an advance called perceptive that would give the character an edge on their observation checks. And then many animals and monsters will essentially have the perceptive advance. So it's you know, quite hard to sneak up on a dog, for instance, or to evade the notice of an owl. And certain monsters, especially, well, I suppose both predators and prey are tend to be more perceptive than uh, many humans, but like BX, because I 
like that game so much, and well, I guess OD&D as well. Um, I'm using a reaction table, a 2D6 reaction table that would be used anytime that you encounter uh, some new NPC or monsters where there, there is something in doubt as far as what how they might react. So uh, if you roll 2d6 and get a 2, the reaction is hostile. 3 to 5, unfriendly. 6 to 8, unsure. 9 to 11, curious. And 12, helpful. And if circumstances or natural inclination warrant a more likely outcome, edges or snags should be applied to the die roll. Morale, I'm going to use again, just like BX. Each uh, NPC or monster will have a morale rating to determine how willing they are to, to, to fight on. This will be a rating between 2 and 12. An average morale is 7. Uh, poor would be 5, while elite troops could have a 9. Creatures with a 12 morale never flee or surrender, so that might be something like, quote-unquote, mindless undead. Or, I don't even know if, like, a fanatical human could get to that level. Maybe if they were under the influence of some magic or something, they might have a morale of 12 or something. While those with a 2 morale would always flee. So perhaps, like, uh, if you, <laughs> for some reason, attack a pheasant, it probably has a two morale. It would probably just try to fly away. Um, let's see. So morale is uh, otherwise checked whenever it appears that there's a potentially very dangerous situation. When it gets real, when comrades are going down, or when grit has gone down to one. Further, hirelings and followers might check morale if unpaid, mistreated, or when their leader employer is taken out. And you roll morale by rolling 2d6. If the number exceeds the morale rating, they break, either fleeing, retreating, or offering surrender truce through parlay. So pretty standard BX kind of stuff there. It's, uh, it especially, I think, fits well in this system because it, they're 2d6 mechanics, just like uh, the rest of the game. Not that everything has to have a unified mechanic. I don't necessarily think that's uh, always a good thing. But it, it does kind of uh, reinforce the other mechanics in the game by having the same kind of situation. Uh, movement. One thing that bothers me about a lot of games is how they have just a uniform movement rate. Even though anyone that's played a sport or been involved in some kind of foot race knows that humans don't all move at the same rate. Far from it. They have very different <laughs> movement rates, right? So while all humans uh, will, and human-sized PCs will have a base movement of 30 feet per round. Um, it will be modified by their dexterity. So dex times 5 feet is added or subtracted to that base 30-foot movement rate. So if you had a plus 2 dex, your movement rate would be 40. If you had a minus 1 dex, your movement rate would be 25. If you're a smaller 
PC, say if there was like a halfling or if you had kobolds or something as potential PCs in your world or squirrel men or something, I don't know. Um, their base would be 20 feet modified by dexterity as, as otherwise dex times 5 feet. And that's just the amount of ground that the PC can cover in a round with a move action. Carrying heavy or bulky items in excess of your strength plus constitution reduces your speed by one per item over the limit. This is going to be basically how I handle encumbrance, uh, which I'll go into in more detail later. And then difficult terrain or swimming or climbing will likely cut movement by half at least. Time in the action sequences and otherwise will be conducted with a lot of the same terminology that we find in D&D. So combat sequences are conducted in rounds. But what I'm going to do is reduce the, the base time. So I'm going to drill down a little bit further. I want to have more tactical choices or more... What I essentially want to do is have have it so that characters don't have the option of like I may I move and then attack or I attack and then move or whatever. I want to have either or you move or you attack. Um, so I'm having combat drilled down to just a handful of seconds during the round. Most combatants may take one action when it's their turn and in initiative. Uh, other in-game activities might be measured in minutes, in turns, which are 10-minute intervals, hours, or even days and weeks, depending on the topic and how abstractly the referee wants to handle it. Many tasks and exploration activities, observation checks for hidden doors, picking a lock, moving while mapping, etc., is measured in 10-minute turns. Initiative. Ooh, initiative. What do we do for initiative? I'm going to have super simple initiative. Uh, the default, and you could change it, obviously, this, this whole game system is um, not wholly writ. <laughs> you can change it to, uh, to whatever your tastes are. But what I'm having is uh, the base is, I think, what's in Knave, where you just roll one die. On a four through six, the players win. On a one through three, their opposition wins. And I suppose if you have more than one or more than two sides, you could break that down into like a one and two, a three and four, and a five and six to determine like who goes. But Or you could have a roll off, but those kinds of things don't come up very often. So initiative is rolled every round and determines which side acts first in the round. If an order needs to be determined within each side... Either sort it out via conversation, whatever narratively makes sense, or go in deck's order. And if you wanted, you know, if you are a real big fan of individual initiative, well, you could certainly just have everyone roll a d6 and maybe have it adjusted by something. Their, um, their dexterity or their attack bonus or some combination of things. <clears throat> but that's... That's Pandora's box. I'm keeping it really simple. Roll one die. <clears throat> Excuse me. Need a sip of coffee here. There's no 
simultaneous possibilities. It's cut and dry, roll a die, one side goes, then the other side goes. Surprise is achieved via ambush, a failed observation check by otherwise unaware foes. Those who are surprised do not get to take an action in the first round of combat. And you could certainly um, have circumstances where where both sides or or certain some members might be surprised while others aren't. If the party is going along in the forest and comes into a clearing to find a group of bandits hanging out uh, at a campsite or something, maybe you'd have all parties involved roll observation checks to see if if uh, they're surprised. The combat sequence is broken up into just five phases. On the first round only, determine if anyone is surprised. Roll initiative. Then each side conducts actions in initiative order. Morale checks, if needed. Um, actions, the side winning initiative for the round takes their all their actions. Each combatant on the side choosing one from the list below. After the winning side is completely finished, the side losing initiative conducts all of their actions, and then end of round. Resolve any bookkeeping and return to phase B initiative to start a new round. So, what can you do in a round of combat? In each round, when it's their turn, each combatant can choose one of the following actions. Attack. You can make an attack roll of any weapon in your hands or on your belt. If attacking with a weapon that was on your belt, anything you had been holding is now on your belt. If you can't place it there due to size or too many items on the belt, consider it dropped at your feet. All items are either in hand, one in each hand obviously, on your belt, two items max, or in your pack. If unimpeded, you can move a step or two, maybe five to ten feet, and still make an attack. So I am allowing a little bit of wiggle room there. But I, what I really don't want to have is these circumstances where you win initiative and you can run 30 feet and attack someone, and in some systems maybe even make two or three attacks against someone before they can do anything in reaction. That just seems a little bit strange. Uh, you can cast a spell if you have them. The character begins casting a spell, depending on how successful this is, um, it will go into effect immediately or in a subsequent round after casting begins. Spell casting may be disrupted if the caster suffers damage in the interval. A move. You can move up to your movement allowance. If you move within reach of an opponent that has a ready melee weapon, you must stop. If already engaged in me melee with opponents, in order to move away without, uh, without them getting a free parting shot, you must pass a dexterity check. So I, I want to have it so that once you're engaged with someone, you can't just willy-nilly uh, choose to move away and attack someone else or whatever. Let's see, you can parry. A, combat, a combatant with a ready weapon may forego an attack and instead focus on defense, adding plus one to their armor against any melee attacks they can see for the round. You may pass if your side won initiative. You can pass and hold your action, choosing another after all combatants on the opponent, 
side have conducted theirs. You may use an advance. Some advances and weird powers require the character to spend their action to use. You may use a device or interact with an object. This could involve you using a ready magical item or potion or weird device, interacting with an object such as opening or closing a door, flipping a table over for cover, swinging from a chandelier, etc. And then the catch-all, you can do something else. If a character wants to try something different or not explained in the rules, it might require their action or several to do it. Digging for anything in their pack will likely take at least several actions. So with, with encumbrance and, and action, what I really, I don't necessarily want to get into super specific detail, but I do want to have it be detailed, if that makes any sense. So I like it when there, there are these physical realities when you have things like either in your hand or ready and available, so in this case, like on your belt, or if they're more or less inaccessible, if they're in your pack, if they're in a sack. So if you have a, a potion and it's not like in your belt pouch or something or in your hand ready to quaff, you can't just like sit and it's somewhere in your pack and presumably it's padded up or in a box or something so that it doesn't shatter if you're if you're just like hit by someone or fall down a pit or whatever it's not going to be readily available to you to quaff down in three seconds right if you have a a quiver and a bow unstrung uh on your back, you can't just, like, go from sword and board to longbow in one round. It requires some activity. So I just kind of want to measure that type of stuff. All right. Uh, trivial and impossible attacks. Having more than three, three or more edges unopposed means the attack automatically succeeds doing six plus the attack bonus and damage. So, oof, that's big time. If three or more snags present themselves, the attack is impossible and has no appreciable effect on the target. Attacks on unconscious or paralyzed targets are trivial. So, shields and armor, as I went over, shields add one to the bearer's armor and require the use of one hand. They also count as a heavy or bulky object for encumbrance. Light armor consists of a mixture of boiled leather and hard studs, helmet, and often a shirt of mail. It raises the wearer's armor by one. Heavy armor is made up of various pieces of heavy metal plate, the classic conquistador armor, breastplates, helmet, tassets, greaves, etc. It increases armor by two and counts as a heavy bulky item for encumbrance. And while wearing it, you may never have a net edge for dexterity checks. You can have them for the purpose of canceling snags, just no net edge on the dex die roll. So basically you can't get quote-unquote advantage on dexterity checks while wearing heavy armor. Armor does not prevent spellcasting, although at least having one, you must have at least uh, one hand free. And you must wear either light or heavy armor. There's no, like, layering 
possibility there. So weapons have like a a characteristic. They're either just a hand weapon, which is any basic one-handed close combat weapon. They're heavy, which is a large melee weapon that requires two hands to wield, so a two-handed sword, a pole arm, great axes, as well as some ranged weapons. Heavy crossbow and gunpowder weapons are treated as heavy. And all heavy weapons are plus one on damage. This is not added to the actual attack roll to like determine if it's successful, but if you do record a hit, you add one to the damage. And heavy weapons also count as a heavy, bulky item for encumbrance. Making an unarmed attack is uh, yields damage at minus one. Some weapons will have a reach property, which, like spears uh, and uh, pole arms, they may be used to attack foes up to 10 feet away. Reach weapons also count as heavy, bulky items. Throwing. Some hand weapons can be balanced for throwing. These have an effective range of 20 feet, max range of 40 feet, where they attack with a snag. So if you're going at like long range, you're basically getting a snag, rolling an extra die. And so 3d6 on the attack and dropping the highest die roll. Excuse me. Ranged weapons are bows, crossbows, and slings. Using ammunition having a a base effective range of 100 feet, yards outdoors, and max range of 300 feet, yards outdoors, where the attack is made with a snag, so a long range. Crossbows have a reload time of one, one action for a normal crossbow, two actions for a heavy crossbow. And gunpowder weapons. Yeah, so my default assumption is that the game is going to be taking place in a kind of late 15th century, early 16th 16th century technology level. So muskets are uncommon, but spreading, and the tech level is matchlock. They require a full minute to reload. All firearms are treated as heavy weapons, and at close range, ignore all non-magical armor. So they're pretty potent. A musket's close range is 100 feet. Shots fired up to 100 yards are done with a snag. Creatures unaccustomed to these weapons must make a morale check when hearing them fired. They cause lots of smoke, and burning match cord gives off a noticeable smell. So maybe you are revealing your position, obviously, by the noise and the smoke and the scent. Pistols have half the range of a musket and are not considered heavy. Gunpowder weapons have a separate mishap table, which I haven't made yet, but... In damp conditions, a snag is imposed, representing the more potential misfires due to the conditions. Alright, we're almost done here. This one, I've, I've kind of gone back and forth. In Best Left Buried, they have a rule for, for monsters ganging up. So rather than having identical monsters making multiple attack rolls, they just give you more instances of a advantage. And I kind of like that, in part because it reduces just the amount of <laughs> attack rolls you're making all the time. But um, it also, I don't know if it, what the, I haven't 
crunch the numbers to see if it, you know, mathematically results in more damage or less damage, but if multiple identical monsters all attack a single target, roll their attacks as a single one with an edge for each monster beyond the first. Thus, if four or more are attacking the same target, the attack may be trivial, unless something causes one or more snags. So, that essentially means that if you're surrounded and attacked by, you know, by four monsters, that it's automatically, they're automatically going to do some damage and quite a lot to you. So, I do think that seems reasonable. Alright, I'm going to... Uh, like Best Left Buried, like uh, later edition d and I, I kind of like the idea of conditions. So I'm going to uh, use these some of these status conditions for shorthand. Um, these might be imposed by magic, circumstance, or special monster attacks. Herman's coming, trying to come over and uh, step on my computer here. Uh, many can be thwarted by a successful attribute check. Some conditions may require a successful stat check before they can may be broken. So completely blinded creatures have a snag on any roll that could involve sight, such as attacks. All sight-based, like exclusively sight-based observation checks are impossible. Deafened creatures make exclusively sound-based observation checks impossible. Paralyzed creatures may not do anything on their turn. No action or movement. Most paralysis attacks are resisted with a successful strength check. Attacks on paralyzed creatures are automatically trivial. Uh, creatures exposed to poison must make a constitution check. Failure often causes symptoms reflected by... jeez, Herman. Reflected by other conditions. Blinded, paralyzed, stunned and usually will cause attribute damage as well. Loss to strength, con, and or dex are most typical. The rate of loss is usually by round for supernatural poison, by minute for deadly, by turn for dangerous, and by hour for weak. At each interval causes the attribute loss, and a con check stabilizes the creature there. Two consecutive check, successful checks start the recovery. Dropping an attribute to minus three means unconscious, minus four means death, and a quack who renders aid can add their lore to the victim's con check. This same procedure may be applied to various diseases. So this is a big mouthful of blah, but what I'm basically doing is dividing poison up into different categories so that it's not some all just this instantaneous thing where it's deadly where you save or you die instantly or within a round or something. It starts having debilitating conditions and if you continue to uh, fail to resist, you, uh, you could s certainly die or at least find yourself in uh, a bad place. And some poisons might just be, like, paralytic. Some could cause, like, blindness or something. Um, yeah, so... Let's see, restrained creatures cannot move on their turn. They can still take an action that doesn't involve moving, 
but other than breaking the restraint, any other action will involve a snag. See grappling below. And stunned creatures have their potential movement rate halved, round up, and any action is done with a snag. All right, grappling takes an action in combat, but success causes restraint rather than damage. A shield still adds to the target's armor, but actual armor worn does not. Rather, add either the target's strength or dex to their armor. So, trying to subdue someone that's very strong or very agile could be more difficult. If the grappler scores a hit, the target is restrained. So if they roll what would normally cause damage, instead they impose the restrained condition on the, their target. To escape and remove this condition, the grappled must pass a strength or dex check. The grappler is also effectively restrained as long as they continue the hold and must use their action to continue to restrain the grappled. A mishap result when attempting to grapple means the attacker takes one to four one to three damage to grit. So if you if you roll snake eyes on your attempt to grapple someone, you're you completely botch it and they uh, and actually do harm to yourself. Probably <laughs> due to the actions of whoever you're trying to grapple, but whatever. Alright, uh encumbrance, as I alluded to earlier, um I'm gonna take a kind of a shorthand approach where I'm really going to only look at things from two perspectives. The physical realities, like what what can you have in your hands? What can you carry? Um, what can be on your belt? What can fit in a backpack? What can fit in a sack or whatever? I mean, there's there's limits to how much you can reasonably carry. And the things I'm going to ask players to closely monitor is just heavy and bulky items. Now, if they had a ridiculous amount of smaller items, I might cast a, <laughs> a jaundiced eye at them or whatever. But in general, if you're just talking about heavier, bulky items, you're talking about big weapons, like 10-foot poles, a ladder, a chest. If you had a pack that, like a light pack, something just with a few days of food, a water skin, and some clothing or something... I wouldn't even count that as an encumbrance. A, a pack is designed to like balance the load and, and be carried and not really impede your movement. If you had a heavy pack, if you had the stuff I mentioned, some food and clothing and a bunch of adventuring gear, I'd count that as a, a heavier, bulky item. And if you had like a fully loaded pack, it's full of gold coins, it's full of, uh, you've got a coil of rope hanging off of it, then I'd count it as a couple of uh, points towards your encumbrance. A shield counts as a heavy item. Uh, heavy armor counts as a heavy item. Now, if you were, that's if you're wearing it. If you were actually just carrying a suit of heavy armor, I'd probably count it as a couple points. And if you were carrying a chest of coins, not only would it count as a heavy item, but it would require the use of your hands, so you couldn't be carrying things, anything else in your hands. Those are the types of 
things I like to keep track of or would prefer to keep track of these things throughout the game. So if you're, um, your limit is the sum of your strength plus constitution. So if you had a plus one strength and a zero in con, you could just carry one heavier bulky item and not be affected. If you carried more than that, you start suffering some penalties. So for every heavy bulky item that exceeds your limit, reduce your movement rate by five feet. If carrying two more than the limit, you are considered encumbered suffering a snag in all dex checks. If carrying three items above the limit, you are considered burdened and have a snag on any attack and activity involving movement of any sort. Now, putting things down can obviously reduce the load. Um, if you are carrying excessively heavy or bulky loads, you might be required to use your hands to carry the stuff. And, uh, yeah. So, we're just talking tracking the heavy stuff, the meaningful stuff. You could even get to the point where if, if you're writing things down, if it's important enough to write it down on your equipment list, maybe you start saying things like if for every four of those items it counts as a, a, a heavier, bulky item. I don't know. It all depends on how involved you want to get. But for me, as long as you're keeping track of the heavy stuff, as long as you're keeping track of the realities of what can actually fit in your pack or sack that you're carrying, what can, what can you actually have hanging off your belt or slung over your shoulder? You know, you can't have like 300 feet of rope <laughs> and a heavy pack and a shield and a pole arm and a lantern and all. I mean, it just, right. I'm not all about counting every coin, but, uh, you know, if you have a sack filled with gold, it's going to be a heavy thing that can affect your movement and your encumbrance, and you're probably going to tie up a hand at least lugging the thing around. So, um, yeah, we can probably break off there. I've prattled on long enough about action sequences in combat, and we can move along now to the calls from last week's show. Welcome to the penthouse, Thundar. Okay, pulling a Norton at the beginning of your latest episode to say Down in a Heap is a great name for a game. I should have said that when I one of my calls last episode. So, anyway, great name for a game. Let me get back to your episode. Okay, now this one's really a Norton because we're just a few minutes into your episode, three minutes into your episode. You mentioned Maze Rats, and I should listen the whole way, but did you see the announcement that He's coming out with a Knave 2. There's going to be a second edition of Knave. I don't know if that interests you or not, but apparently the people on his Patreon are going to get draft copies, you know, put up draft copies of it up as he's working on it. So I just thought you might be interested to know that Ben Milton is working on it. It looks like it's mainly he's adding more tables to it. He's adding in more background tables and different things like that. Um, he, there is a YouTube video, a short YouTube video where he talks about it. Hey, thanks, Jason. I appreciate it. Yeah, Ben Milton is putting out a second edition of Knave. If you go over to the Questing Beast YouTube channel, it's like a, I don't know, three-minute video or something where he talks about it. Sounds like there's going to be more procedural type of 
rules for exploration, for wilderness exploration. There is going to be a weather system. As Jason mentioned, uh, a bunch of potential backgrounds that your knave could have as like a, I don't know, failed career or something, or just like a, what they served an apprenticeship in or something. Uh, a random system for determining your starting equipment, like an equipment package kind of thing. And yeah. Oh, we talked about how you can, choosing your attributes can maybe give your character a certain type of class feel. So I don't know if that's for adaptation purposes, uh, for adapting OSR modules. You know, like if you have an NPC that's a wizard, well, what does that mean in Knave? Or a fighter magic user, what does that mean in Knave? I don't know if that's what it is or not. But yeah, I'm, I'm interested. I'm, I'll probably pick it up when he releases it on drive-thru. I'm not a patron. Uh, I, only have, I only have one person I support via Patreon right now, and that's Tim Shorts over at Gothridge Manor. But uh, yeah, thanks for the info. I went and checked out the video, and it looks pretty cool. Yo, Rob, for what it's worth, I think Down in a Heap is an awesome name for the game you're designing, man. I think it's perfect. It's a genius move on your part, so right on for that. I really like the attribute system you're using. It reminds me a bit of the uh, Apocalypse world and Powered by the Apocalypse type games for their attributes. Like in Apocalypse world, your attributes are something like cool, hot, hard, sharp, and weird. And they range from like a, um, I think it's from a plus three to a minus three. There's no numbers. So I think your attribute system is really cool. And yeah, in Pathfinder, uh, characters get one attribute point every four levels. So I, I also really like the idea that, you know, uh, your characters in the game will be getting attribute points. So good stuff. Peace out. Yo, Rob, me again, pulling a Jack Daniels, which, by the way, is another genius move on your part. So it sounds like you're, the fog is lifting from your brain space because you've just been on a roll lately, dude. <laughs> but yeah, in response to what Jason was saying about degrees of success and saving throws, I will point to Pathfinder 2. Uh, there, for the saving throws, there are four degrees. You can critically succeed, succeed, fail, or critically fail. And depending on what you roll the spell has different effects. So yeah, I don't think that's too much of, I, I don't think that's a, you know, a, a real challenge to do with saving throws or anything. It's, it's, it's already been done and it actually works really well. So yeah, that's something. There you go. <laughs> Peace out. Hey Joe, thanks for the calls. I appreciate it. And I'm glad at least a couple people think the name down in a heap is a, a decent one for a role-playing game. Just kind of made sense to me to, I thought it was a fairly good name for a game and may as well tie it to my podcast, right? As far as the attributes, yeah, I guess um, I wasn't aware of Apocalypse World or Powered by the Apocalypse. I mean, I know the games, obviously. I know they exist, but I've never played them or read them. I've heard them talked about a little bit. I, I wasn't aware that weird was an attribute and that I do know it's like a a 2d6 mechanism and i was pretty sure they had just bonuses and penalties to the as like a modifier to the die roll as their attribute you know how to note an attribute the notation for it 
and degrees of success, uh, yeah, that sounds a lot like uh, Delta Green and some other BRP games where there's like a fumble, a critical, and then I think if you're old doubles, that is below your skill level or doubles above your skill level that can have some kind of like enhanced or uh, misfortunate result as well. So I I am aware that there are quite a few games that have those mechanisms. I'm not really sure yet if I'm going to have anything in Down and Heap other than mishaps and crits outside of... Uh, Outside of combat, you know, the actual attack roll determining how much damage you do. But, you know, I gotta noodle about that. And the attribute bonuses, too, as you go up in level. Sounds like Pathfinder 2 and 5e are pretty similar there, where, like, every fourth level you get uh, a bonus. I like that kind of thing. Helps you um, make your characters a little bit different. And I'd even, like in Whisper Tales of Gore, we've been doing that for years now, where you... As you go up in level, you get an opportunity to see if your attributes improve. But uh, now Jason's got, he called in, Daniel had asked about uh, column shifts and degrees of success and called out Jason by name because he knew that Jason would have some answers and Jason has obliged. Take it away. To answer Daniel's question, there are a ton of games out there that use degrees of success, of course. You know, Rollmaster being one of the earlier ones, right? But as far as the Marvel superhero style column shift, well, Dungeon Crawl Classics is one. I mean, I know Daniel's familiar with that. Froth's 12v12 uses column shifts. So that, you know, it's a free game that's out there that uses column shifts. Um, of course, there are all the TSR games that use those columns. There's a Gamma World version, and there was... You know, there are a bunch of those that use column shifts. All of these, you know, that table kind of thing. Um, Raven Guy Games' upcoming Sword and Sorcery game has a version of the column shift in it. Uh, Reaver. So there are a number of games out there that do use column shifts where you change your die size, or you change the column, you, you know, you're rolling. I cut myself off there, but there are a number of games that use, you know, the column shift, or you change your die size up at, up and down the dice chain to simulate a harder, easier thing that you're doing. I, I think that's a little different than the idea of degrees of success. You know, they're, so maybe we're kind of mixing two different ideas there. And, and like, say, there are a ton of games out there that use degrees of success. Um, probably the one that most people are familiar with or these days is 7th edition Call of Cthulhu, which uses degrees of success. But, yeah, there's a lot of things like that out there. I, I'm very interested to see what you come up with, Rob. I, I enjoy listening to you lay out your system as you go, and I especially appreciate you taking the time to describe why you're picking the things you are and, and, and your, the decision process behind it, because I find that very fascinating. So keep up the great work. Talk to you soon. All right, thanks for laying down the lore there, Jason. I appreciate it. And it was my fault. I was the person, I think, that was confounding Daniel's question about... Uh, he was talking more about, like, the column shift mechanic that was present or that he was seeing in Star Frontiers rather than actual degrees of success. 
But uh, yeah, I appreciate your feedback there. The first place I remember seeing column shifts, that, that idea is an old Avalon Hill and other uh, GDW and stuff, uh, SPI war games, where you'd have a combat results table and you'd be dividing the sum of the attacker's attack strength for all the units attacking a position divided by the defense and to come up with like a ratio. And the results would be things like retreats or exchanges or defender eliminated or a step loss or something. And if you were attacking um, a unit that was in a defensible position, like across a river or in woods or swamp or rough terrain or in a city, that you'd maybe have the column shift one or two in the defender's favor. Uh, so that's where... And then I, there was what, the Russian campaign. I remember that one had uh, an abstraction for air power. So if you placed some of your air power resources, that would give column shifts too. But uh, yeah, so I, to me that's a very wargamey kind of idea, or I, I think that's probably where most of the RPG game designers first got it from and then applied it uh, as other <laughs> RPGs, right? But it's a pretty interesting thing. I gotta find my Star Frontiers stuff Daniel's been kind of talking about on the Discord channel, and it's got me thinking about that game a little bit too, and uh, I found my box set. The only thing that wasn't in the box were the advanced rules. It just, it just has the basic rules and the scenarios and the maps and unpunched counters. So that tells me I didn't really play it much, if at all. I don't really have much of a memory of things other than rolling up characters just to kind of monkey around with the system. But anyway, we mentioned Daniel, and here we got a couple calls from Daniel. Hey up, Daniel from Made It's Keep calling in, uh, listening to your episode about the Down on the Heap RPG. Sounds really cool. Uh, the mechanics all sound pretty tight. You know, I mean, the idea of having levels but not classes is kind of cool, I think. Um, I, a lot of skill-based systems don't have either, and that's, I don't know, that doesn't work for me. I like archetypes and stuff, so I'm not usually a classless system guy. But uh, this sounds pretty neat, and I like the way it seems. I mean, based on the numbers you're throwing down, it seems pretty balanced, um, you know, as far as the attacks and the, the, the maximum places people can go with their ability scores and such. So I think it's actually going to play really smoothly. So, um, yeah, I'm curious about the different skills. I think that's going to be the hardest thing to balance and lay out is like what skills and, you know, are available and that some aren't just like clearly the one that everybody should take. Uh, I found that's always the trickiest part with these. So I'm really curious what you come up with here. So far, I'm loving it though. Hey, thanks, Daniel. I appreciate it. I'm glad it sounds kind of interesting to you, even though it's not really your cup of tea as far as not having the the base archetype kind of system. You are correct, though, that the uh, in a classless system, coming up with advances or skills or whatever that uh, that have a broad appeal and don't have some kind of obvious choices is a difficult one and the most difficult will be the choice of being a spellcaster and the way i'm planning on curtailing the potency of spellcasting is by 
first requiring a a skill roll. So magic will be a little bit more uncertain and having the possibility that something could go wrong. But primarily tying it more to ritual magic so that there will be... If you perform a ritual, you can just make a spell check as normal. Uh, but that will take 10 minutes, maybe... Maybe I'll have it as a base, like a turn, a 10-minute ritual. And if you make it into an hour-long ritual, you'll get like an edge on your roll to see if you succeed. But if you're casting the spell in, uh, very hastily, just in like in a combat situation or something, you'll be rolling with a snag. And further, it won't, unless you roll really high, like a critical success or, you know, a modified roll of 12 or higher, it won't go into effect that round. You'll just, you'll start your casting, but depending on the success of the, the roll, it will go into effect in a, a round afterwards. So you'll continue casting until it goes into effect. So that's going to cut down the, the potency of the magic at least spontaneous kind of magic. You can prepare for things or anticipate things. Um, but also the magic, um, I'm, I'm leaning more towards having it revolve a little bit around like summoning and effects and divinations and things like that, and not so much of the flashbang and healing magic that's present in most forms of D&D. I don't know if I'm going to have things like magic missile type things or lightning bolts or or even healing. I might. I might, but... And the, the characters, too, are going to be limited in how many spells that they can have mastered based upon their lore and weird scores and stuff. So if you want to be a really good spellcaster, you could potentially, if you, as you go up a level, and if you keep finding spells and taking your attribute bonuses in weird and lore and stuff. But if you just are a dabbler, that's kind of what you're going to be, a dabbler. And, um, yeah, so next episode will probably, I'll go into the advances that I'm tinkering around with now. But Daniel's got one more call, and then we'll close it out. Oh, yeah, your, um, your ability scores as being kind of caps is really interesting to me because it makes me then start to think of ability scores as, I don't want to say not actual, well, I'll say not actual, but almost like potential, right? So you might have 18 strength, but if you never practice your melee fighting, you won't get a bonus from your strength, right? You, you're just swinging wildly. But if you are strong and you practice the melee, you'll get the maximum amount of effort from the melee. So that's super interesting. Insofar as like the reaction role and like the levels of success and failure... Yeah, I could see that being, I think, it, it like kind of a hold up at the table. I think that's why when you look at like Powered by the Apocalypse games, they generally have those moves. So like, you know, kind of what you do based on where you roll. And then in other games that have that, they sometimes give like a hero point or something if they get really high. So, you know, those are the options. So it's not always a debate. I'm not sure I like either one, but those are options, I guess. Hey, I'm glad you like that. That That is kind of my intent that the attributes represent a potential, like a raw potential, and not necessarily your current capabilities. So you could you could start out with a hulking character of with a plus two strength, 
but that doesn't mean they're just automatically a great swordsman. They have to take advances to increase their their uh, attack bonus. So that will be an advance. It will be uh, increase your attack bonus, but the the ceiling or the cap for your melee bonus is your your current strength, and the cap for your ranged attack bonus is your current dexterity. So even though you might have a plus two or a plus three <clears throat> dexterity, doesn't mean you're Robin Hood. It has means that, that you have the capability to be a great archer, but until you actually take the advances to increase your attack bonus, it doesn't uh, manifest itself. So that's kind of my way of having it so that you have to take some martial training to get those things. You can't just, like, increase your attack bonuses by increasing your strength or dexterity. You also you have to do it in conjunction with taking, uh, like, a weapon training advance or whatever. Um, and, yeah, there'll, <clears throat> there'll be prereqs, too, for other things. So to be uh, an acrobat or something, you'll have to have a minimum dexterity or to... Uh, take weird powers you'll have to take weird and all that so and yeah as far as the degree of success thing i i hear you that's kind of how i feel about it too they can be really cool but i i could see it bogging things down at the table one thing i'm toying with is perhaps if you roll a critical uh not only could it have a um an enhanced result. So, especially like in spellcasting, if you rolled a critical on your spellcasting roll, I think I'll probably have that cause a snag to any kind of resistance uh, attribute check that someone makes to resist the spell. Um, but, uh, oh, and for spells too, I want to tie it, I was talking about ritual, I also want to tie it to more material things. So if if I have a charm spell in the game, I think it will only apply, uh, or so only apply if you have like some kind of possession of that person you're trying to charm. Uh, so like if they, if you have a garment that they recently wore, or some hair, or fingernail trimmings or something or um that that's the only way you can charm someone is if you have that or maybe if you know their name or something um or maybe if you have something like that in their possession that causes um a snag on on their role to try and resist the charm or vice versa it causes a snag for you to make the the casting role to try to charm them, something like that. Uh, but for other things, I might have something where if you roll a critical on something, you get an experience point for it. And I'm going to compress experience points down quite a bit so that one experience point is meaningful. Um, but if so, if you rolled a critical when you were trying to, uh, in a meaningful situation, you I'm not going to say you can just go out and, like, climb trees until you get a critical success to get an experience point or something. It's got to be climbing something under duress or um, 
or picking a lock that's meaningful, not just practicing, but to get at something or get away from something or I don't know, whatever. But that's one of the avenues I'm thinking about doing is just saying if you, if you critically succeed on something that maybe you'll get an experience point for it. Because it would only happen once every 36 rolls, so it's not like it would happen all the time. But that's fodder for an episode in the future. Thanks to Daniel for your musical rendition of the Down in a Heap theme song. Thanks to Jason, Joe, and Daniel for your feedback and calls on the on the game system. If anyone has thoughts about what I've discussed so far, whether it's what was in the last episode or in this current episode about actions and combat and stuff, I'd love to hear your feedback. And until I talk to you again, don't go down in a heap. And be well. Be safe. On second thought, I'll have to noodle about that whole experience point for critical idea because it just occurred to me that, duh, if you have an edge, you're far more apt to roll a critical, a double six, than you would without it. And, hmm, yeah, I don't know. I I do like the idea of being able to get an experience point or something for some learning experience, like perhaps a critical success or possibly a mishap or something. And if I did work that into the experience point and advancement system, I guess I'd have to crunch some numbers and account for that, those instances in the advancement table so it's not dominating. That's not the primary way to earn experience points. Hmm. Well, anyway... Let me know what you think about all these things. If you have anything you'd like to uh, discuss. And yeah, thanks for listening. My strength has returned. My wounds have healed. Thanks to Ariel's magic. Nothing to it. It's all in the wrist. Time to go, Ariel. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.